Psalm 116. Let's read it. I love the Lord because He hath heard my voice and my supplications, because He hath inclined His ear unto me. Therefore will I call upon Him as long as I live. The sorrows of death compass me. The pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech Thee, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low, and He helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, truly I am Thy servant. I am Thy servant and the son of Thy handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. I will offer to Thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all His people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of Thee, O Jerusalem, praise ye the Lord. It is another one of these Hallel's. The Hallel Psalms have the phrase, Praise ye the Lord, which in Hebrew is Hallelujah. Uh, there's a string of them through here, generally referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. And we have uh, noted that the other Psalms in this series are almost nationalistic. They're thanksgiving for what God has done for Israel in bringing them out of Egypt, establishing them as a nation. But the Psalm tonight is very different, it's very personal in nature. It's very singular. It's the psalm of an individual who is giving thanks to God for his deliverance. Let me ask you a question tonight. Do you love God? Do you? Well, I I mean, this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer, but not trying to put anybody on the spot, but I want you to think about that a moment. Do you love God? The greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is our duty as His people to love God. Well, let me ask you a question. Why do you love God? Good answer. I made... an a very astute observation back in our study on First John. And I do that so rarely that I'm disappointed when people don't remember it, so I'm going to remind you of it. It's one of those things that sort of came out, and I didn't realize how important what I'd said was till I'd said it. It's one of those things that you just sort of blurt out, and then a lot of times you go back and regret what you blurted out. But this time... I think it was right on the money. 
I pointed out in 1 John 4, we have on two verses the statement, God is love. You're very familiar with that statement. A lot of times in homes, when I go into a home, somebody will have God is love, either embroidered or a plaque or something like that up on the wall. But we, we know that's what the Bible says, but we don't understand what does that mean. Everybody else in the universe loves because. God loves because He is. When we say God is love, we mean that God loves without being caused. In fact, I was thinking about this, how well this ties into our study on Job. We could say that God loves without a cause, for no reason. For only this reason, that God is love. Everybody else, as Matt quoted a few more verses down after telling us that God is love, John tells us we love Him because. Um, who do you love? you love your mother? Don't answer. Why do you love your mother? Why don't you love my mother? Because. Because your mother bore you. Your father begat you. You understand? There's a reason why. Do you love your wife? Do you love your husband? Why? Because. Right? There's a reason. You see, we all love because. Only God loves without a cause. Because He is love. His love is an uncaused love. We keep stumbling in on that in the Scripture, like, for instance, He set His love on Israel. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Not because they earned it, deserved it, not because of who they were, how big they were, how wonderful they were. It's simply God loved them because He loved them, He says. Because He decided to, because He chose to. Everybody else loves in response to that. And notice what the psalmist is saying right off the bat in our psalm tonight. I love the Lord because. Because. And he goes on to lay out the problem he was having. Now, we do not know exactly what the problem is. It certainly sounds like that it was a serious, life-threatening illness or disease of some sort. You'll notice in verse 3, he talked about the sorrows of death, encircling him, compassing him, the pains of hell, or a better translation would be the grave, got hold upon me. That's a strange way of putting it. They They got me. It's sort of like our expression, to catch a cold. Why are you chasing the cold? Just don't chase it. Maybe you won't catch it. But what we really mean is not that we caught the cold, it's that the cold caught us. And notice the psalmist's language here is exactly that. That the pains, the sorrows of death and the grave got hold of me. They, they came upon me. They seized me. And they encircled me. You'll also notice, I'm sort of overlooking verse 2, that he says, because he's listened to me, because he inclined his ear, because he stooped to hear what I had to say, I will call upon him as long as I live. 
That's one of the great differences between what we would call a foxhole conversion. The fellow who, uh, you know, he's just going to serve God now. He's been delivered from danger. And it lasts about 24 hours. It basically lasts till he's out of danger. There's the story about the little boy crawling around on the tin roof on the barn. He slipped and he's sliding down the side of the roof. And just as he was going over the edge, there was a nail sticking out that caught him by his belt. And so here he is, and he's sliding down the barn roof. He's screaming, God, save me, save me, save me. And he's caught there on that nail, hanging there, dangling. He says, that's okay, God, I've saved myself. That's usually how long our repentance lasts. Till we're out of danger. But notice the resolution here, the determination of the psalmist to serve God for as long as he lives. Um, notice, I'm just making a few observations here in the first part of this, because the first part of this is dealing with why we love God. And notice in verse 6, he says, The Lord preserves the simple. We uh, don't normally take that as a compliment that somebody would call us simple. Uh, We generally equate somebody that's simple with stupid, foolish. But uh, I I don't think that's what's implied here. Uh, Some translations uh, sort of uh, translate it by the idea of childlike, and that certainly is part of this. But I think a better understanding of the word is that it's pure. It's undivided. When God hears the cry of the simple man, that the simple man is is simple in the sense of undivided. Y'all, y'all remember, familiar, uh, remember eighth grade grammar? You had simple sentences and complex sentences. Simple sentence had just one subject and verb, right? In the same sense that the simple man has no other agenda, just one thing. And that God hears the cry of the man who has a simple heart, a pure heart. That's the beatitude. Blessed are they that are pure in heart, for they shall see God. They're not deluded. They're not compounded. There's not a jillion different things they're trying to listen to and serve. They have one thing on their mind, and God hears that. Look at the description of His deliverance down in verse 7. He says there, Return Unto thy rest, O my soul. That's an interesting way of putting it. Sort of reminds you of the dove that was sent out of Noah's ark, you remember? Couldn't find rest and came back to the ark. Uh, there's a sense in which trials and troubles disturb us. They cause us agitation. And notice that now God has heard his cry and God has delivered him. He says to his soul, you can go back to your rest. Because the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You can go back to this unvexed, untroubled state. Now, certainly the highest form of faith is to be at rest in the midst of troubles. But most of the time, our faith is not that strong. Uh, We'd like to say that my faith would be just as strong uh, as it is tonight if I were on the battlefield about to charge into a machine gun nest. The story is told about Stonewall Jackson that uh, his men were always worried about his safety and he said, I'm just as safe on the battlefield as if I were home in bed. Well, that's certainly true, but how many of us really feel that way? 
uh, most of the time when we're in situations like that, we are greatly, greatly troubled and greatly agitated. And so notice that the psalmist is saying to his soul, we sometimes sing, have a little talk with Jesus. You all remember that song? Have a little talk with Jesus. The psalmist often has a little talk with himself. Oh soul, why, why art thou cast down within me? has a little talk with himself. You ever have to talk to yourself? I mean, don't do it out loud. They'll come get you, the guy in the white coats and all. But uh, there's a sense here in which the psalmist is talking to his own soul, saying, okay, return to your rest. God is here. Everything's going to be okay. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. And then I want you to notice verse 10 and 11. Uh, it's somewhat puzzling, and yet, it has to be important, and I'll explain why in just a minute. You notice in verse 10, he says, I believe, therefore have I spoken. And some translations then put in quotations what follows that this is what he spoke. Uh, first of all, his first quotation was that I was greatly afflicted. And then he goes on to say, I said in my haste, and here's the second thing he said, all men are liars. And um, it's, it's a difficult thing to try to fit it into the context of the psalm here, but the reason I would say this is important is because, lo and behold, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse. Uh, Turn over to 2 Corinthians. So obviously Paul was uh, familiar with this passage, with this psalm which doesn't surprise us. He had a tremendous grasp on the contents of Scripture. But the question is, of all the verses of this psalm, that's a strange one to quote. Um, what did it say again? I believe, therefore, have I spoken. Look in Second Corinthians 4, verse 13. 2 Corinthians 4.13, We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak. Interesting thought. Well, Paul is quoting the verse in the context, and notice he goes on to tell you what he believes. Uh, Verse 14, that he who raised Jesus up from the dead will present us with you. In other words, that the God who delivered Christ will deliver us. But notice that what he is drawing our attention to is the fact that true faith utters. True faith speaks. That what comes out of our mouth is congruent to what is truly and really in our heart. And as the psalmist says, I believe, therefore have I spoken. And in what he spoke was, I was greatly afflicted, and all men are liars. That's what he truly believes, you see. Now, the, now Paul picks up on that, and though he doesn't state what the psalmist states, he says we have the same spirit of faith. You catch that phrase? In other words, faith, true faith, authentic faith, works like this, that we believe something, and therefore we speak. And so Paul is saying, basically explaining his ministry here, is that's precisely the way he operates. That what he truly believes in his heart is what he speaks. I I think that is the ground of, for instance, uh, Romans 10.9. If we believe in our heart, the Lord Jesus, and 
confess with our mouth that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You say, well, well, which is it? Is it in my heart or is it my mouth? Well, the two are connected according to what Paul is telling us here. What you truly believe is what will come out of your mouth. I mentioned our guide, our Israeli guide that we had in Israel and uh, again, providential encounter with him in Mexico a couple of weeks ago. And if ever there was a man like a Nicodemus or a Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple, he, that's exactly where he's at. You say, well, is he a Christian? I don't think so. Because of this. Till we confess it, we can't really say that we truly believe it. There is a connection between the two. And notice here that what the psalmist is confessing is the fact that he's greatly afflicted, and then the statement that all men are liars. And he said, I said in my haste, and it almost has the flavor that, well, I, I just blurted this out. We say a lot of things sometimes that we don't mean. We're in times of affliction. We're in times of trouble. You ever been there? You're hurting. You're sick. Sick as a dog. You lose your temper. I'm told that when I don't, when I get hungry, my temper gets short. I don't think so. I think I'm the same old lovable guy all the time myself. But rumor has it, uh, my wife and kids used to say I'd come in the house in a bad mood and they'd say, feed him, feed him. Uh, when we're hungry, when we're hurting, we say things we don't mean. And it has that flavor to it that I said this in my haste. But again, lo and behold, it appears that Paul also quotes this text. Look in Romans 3. Now again, this is not quite as direct a citation as the one in 2 Corinthians. Uh, he's talking about the problem of Jewish unbelief in Romans 3, verse 3. Uh, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In other words, the idea is if God has purposed the salvation of Israel and Israel does not believe and does not attain that salvation, does this mess up God's purpose? And, of course, his answer is, God forbid, let God be true, but every man a liar. Now, again, that's not a direct citation, but it's the same thought. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Well, you say, well, how in the world does this fit with the psalm? Um, my best... My best guess, and it is, I mean, somewhat, it's not exactly clear, but it seems to me that what the psalmist is saying here is that you have God's way and you have man's way. And when you believe God, you are declaring all men are liars. Now that's true, I'm not just, I'm just not absolutely certain that's what the psalmist is saying. But notice that we have the way of God and we have the way of man. And God's way is not man's way. And so if we believe and confess God's way, we must of necessity believe and confess that man's way isn't true, isn't right, that all men are in fact liars. And we've been studying that in Sunday morning between the idea of legalism, the worldwide, universal religion of mankind, universal except for this thing called Christianity, which is 
a completely different animal, completely different critter. And you can't have both things. It's one way or the other. One is true, the other is not. And to hold to one, we must then confess that the other way, we're not pluralists, that, all, that we have multiple truths. But we're saying that this is true, that is not true. Okay, well, let me, let me go on to the second half of the psalm. First half of the psalm is, why do I love God? The second half of the psalm is, how do I love God? Or maybe, let's put it like this, how do I express my love for God? Notice that we're being told in the first half of the psalm that my love for God is coming about because of how He has dealt with me. He has blessed me, He has heard me, He's come to my aid, He's rescued me, He has saved me. We could ask ourselves again to back up a moment. Why do you love God? Number one, He made you. He's your Creator. Number two, He sustains you. He keeps you. The fact that you're still around. My, the fact that I'm still around. I look back half a dozen times. I should have died and God preserved me. Why, I have no clue. All I know is He preserved me. He saved me. He rescued me. He keeps me going. And then thirdly, for the child of God, we also have the the biggest reason of all is because when we were sinking deep in sin, love rescued me, right? So we have abundant reasons why we are to love God. That's why I love God. All He has done for me. Okay, number two then, how am I going to show that love? And notice the question that's being asked in verse 12 is what will I render unto the Lord for all His benefits unto me? I've received all these benefits, tokens of His love for me. Now what will I do in response to that? Well, the answer is verse 13, that I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Almost universally, everybody, I, it was my first hunch that this is what this text was talking about. And everybody, every commentator I consulted um, had exactly the same thought that I did, that this is talking about what's called the drink offering. Um, there, were, there were five categories of sacrifices under the Mosaic Law. The one that this falls under was the um, burnt offering, and they would offer with that unleavened bread, what they called the meal offering or the grain offering. It could be pancakes, could be uh, biscuits, stuff made with unleavened bread. But always, when you offer a burnt offering and this offering of unleavened bread, you always gave what was called a drink offering. You can find back in the book of Numbers, you'll see the, the directions that they were never to leave out the wine. I keep saying the, the Southern Baptist miracle would prefer Jesus turning wine into water rather than water into wine. But anyway, in the, under the Mosaic Law, the, 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 the fact was that you had wine that God's altar was His table. And you're burning an offering, an animal, on that altar. And so that you're feeding Him meat. You're burning bread on that altar, and he's the fire is consuming it, and it's God consuming the offering. Well, you also gave him something to drink, and you poured wine on the altar. 
And so you have those three elements. And so the wine, the cup that you poured, was called the cup of salvation. It's not that you're drinking the cup, so to speak. It's that this is in token of the deliverance that you've experienced, that you're in turn pouring this out to God. I don't know if I'm making that clear. Perhaps an illustration. David, at one point, was hemmed in. A garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. And he just sort of made an offhand comment, oh, I wish I had some water from that well there in Bethlehem. And two of his men, at great hazard to their lives, broke through the Philistine lines, drew him a bucket of water, and brought it back to him. But David wouldn't drink it. He says to God, this represents the lives of these men, and he poured it out unto the Lord. You see the point he's making? I'm not worthy of this kind of devotion. You alone are worthy of this. And so that's the idea of this drink offering. So the psalmist is basically saying that I am going to pour out this drink offering, this cup of salvation unto the Lord. It was done in connection with a vow of thanksgiving. There were all kinds of vows. You're familiar with the Nazarite vow. That's probably the most famous one. Uh, for, for a period of time, you had nothing to do with the grape. Not only couldn't drink wine, couldn't even eat raisins. Nothing to do with the grape. Couldn't cut your hair. Couldn't have any contact with the dead for a period of time. But there were all kinds of vows. Uh, vows of deliverance. You're out on the sea. The sea is raging. You think you're fixing to sink. And you say, Lord, if you'll just save me, I'll do such and such. Okay, Or you have a vow of thanksgiving. Let's say you're a rancher and you've got a bunch of cattle and you're saying, you know, God has just blessed me abundantly this year. I'm going to give him that cow right over there. You know, that calf. That's, that's the Lord's calf. Uh, the Methodists back home had what they called the Lord's Acre. You ever hear that? They used to have the Lord's Acre thing every year. And uh, it, it by the time I came along, they weren't, it wasn't as strict as it used to be, but uh, in the old days, they would set aside an acre of their land for the Lord. And whatever grew on that acre, that's what they brought to this Lord's Acre dinner. By the time I came along, people buying their stuff at the grocery store, you understand. But originally, it's like, I vow to give the Lord whatever grows on this acre of land. Well, that's the idea. I'm giving Him that calf. And so he's blessed me, or, or let's say I'm a wheat farmer. See that field over there? I'm going to give the Lord that, the grain. And so you have these vows of thanksgiving. The, the interesting thing about vows, and this includes, I mean, most of the time the only vows we know anything about these days are wedding vows. But the one thing about a vow is that nobody, nobody made you do it. I mean, even the Nazarite vows were voluntary. Nobody put a gun to your head and made you say these words. But once you said the word, then you're on the, you're on the hook. Then the law came in and says, you dare not change it. You dare not tell God it's a mistake. You pay your vow. You follow through with what you have vowed to God. Well, notice what's going on here. The psalmist is basically saying, God has delivered me. He's, he's saved my soul. He's rescued me from death. And I want to serve Him for as long as I live, so I'm going to pay my vows. Verse 14, I will pay my vows unto the Lord in the presence of His people. 
verse 17, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows. Notice, I'll pay my vows not only privately, individually, but in public, in the midst of God's people, in the courts of the Lord's house. Verse 19, there at the temple, in the midst of Jerusalem. I will pay my vows. When you pay your vow, you went to the temple. You did it publicly. You're basically expressing, God has done this for me, and now here is what I vowed to do, and I'm following through with my promise. Uh, This is, of course, Old Testament. But it's very similar to what Paul writes in Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, which holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. In other words, what is he saying? It's just reasonable. In light of what God has done for your soul, the reasonable response is to present your life to Him. I I didn't read it a moment ago, but verse 8 is interesting because notice the triple deliverance here. You delivered my soul from death, you delivered my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. The whole man, the the whole me, God has rescued, God has saved. And what do we owe God in response? Legally, nothing. There is no legal claim. But it's sort of like that guy that owed the 10,000 talents. Had it just freely forgiven. Now, there was no legal law that said he couldn't go out in the street and find that guy that owed him 100 denarii and take him by the neck and have him thrown into prison until he pays him everything he owes him. But that wasn't the right thing to do as the parable makes it very clear. How dare you? in light of what you have received. Your reasonable response is, since you've been forgiven, is to forgive. Since you've been given grace, be gracious. Since you've been given mercy, be merciful. I overlooked verse 16. Again, you've heard this. uh, No, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. In studying this, I thought I knew what that verse meant till I studied it in the context of this psalm. Well, we oftentimes, uh, I've heard this quoted, that um, God just loves it when His saints die, when His people die, because He gets to take them home, gets to bring them to glory. I don't really think that's what this is saying. When we say something's precious, um, a precious stone, what connotations are connected with that. It's rare. It's valuable. It, it's something you, you highly esteem. You don't take it lightly. I think that's what verse 15 is expressing. That the psalmist has been delivered from death. You, we would think it'd be the other way around. If precious inside the Lord is the death of his saints, if he just loves to have his people die, then God wouldn't have delivered him. But notice the whole psalm is insinuating that God has preserved my life. He saved my life. And it seems to be implying that God takes the death of His servants very seriously. He does not lightly give them over to death. He loves to preserve them. He loves to deliver them. Yes, oftentimes he, His will is that we, we die. There is 
often in Scripture the notion that somebody lived full of years and was buried with their father. You know, sometimes we say, now that's the way to go. In biblical language, that's the way to go. Now, is that always the way God's servants went? No, James was beheaded early in the book of Acts. Sometimes there are those who are marked out for slaughter. But the very best thing, I, I, I was reminded, I was telling some of the guys Sunday, George McGinnis was talking about Gene Watkins, this guy he stays with, he and Margaret stays with in St. Louis. Gene's 93 years old. And uh, they had a family there in the St. Louis church that picks him up every Sunday and takes him to church. And they picked him up a few weeks ago and said, Gene, did you, did you hear that George Beverly Shea died? And Gene said, well, no. said, uh, how old was he? And they said, he was 104. And Gene said, I wonder what happened. <laughs> old age is relative, isn't it? Only a 93-year-old would ask that question. Wonder what happened to him. The rest of us would say he was 104. <laughs> Wayne's it right there. But in biblical terminology, that's as good as it gets. He died full of years and was buried with his fathers. But even so, God sees it as a precious thing. He does not take lightly the death of his people. I think that's what the psalmist is expressing here. And then one final observation. I mentioned this last Wednesday night in verse 16. O Lord, truly I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thy handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. The paradox of Christianity is that Christ has set us free And yet, being set free, we find ourselves under a greater obligation than we ever were when we weren't free because of what God has done for us. You may remember the song I set to music years ago and sometimes sing How Much I Owe, Robert Murray McShane's wonderful, wonderful poem. And um, they sing that down in uh, Elmendorf at Brother Kyle White's church. And they had a visiting preacher from Florida that was there and heard them sing that. And he got up and said, that's the most unscriptural song I've ever heard in my life. He said, we don't owe God anything. He has set us free. He's paid our debt. All our debt is completely paid. What do you mean how much I owe? And when that got to me, when that was, well, number one, I was a little bit upset. My main man, Robert Murray McShane, being slandered here, but uh, said, you know, the guy just doesn't get it. You don't get it. We're not talking about a legal debt anymore. We're talking about a debt of love that we'll never be able to repay that 10,000 talent debt that was forgiven us. Watts put it well, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. An infinite debt that was freely forgiven demands an infinite surrender on my part of my life into the hands of my God. Did you notice the I wills? I have to open my Bible again. The I wills in this thing. Verse 2, 
because he inclined his ear, I will call upon him as long as I live. Verse 9, I will walk. Verse 13, I will take the cup of salvation. Verse 14, I will pay my vows. Verse 17, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 18, I will pay my vows unto the Lord. Uh, Calvinism sometimes gets a bad rap in that they who don't understand it think that what we're saying is it's not necessary for us to will. And we mean no such thing. In fact, Arminianism misunderstands the place of the will in salvation completely. They want, are you willing to go to heaven? Yeah. Sure. That's not the question. Are you willing to surrender your life into the hands of this one who gave himself for you? That's what grace does. It makes his people willing in the day of his power. And they're willing to do more than walk an aisle and sign a decision card. They're willing to do more than just go to heaven. They're willing, like the psalmist here, to walk before the Lord all the rest of their days in the land of the living. That's their desire. That's their determination. Yeah, the will has a big part to play, but it's been made willing. We love because, and we will because of what God has done for us. Well, we'll stop here. And uh, next time we've got to ease it with you. Notice 117. Funny, just a chapter away from the longest psalm in the in the book, uh, Psalm 117, a little shorty, but uh, we'll take a look. Uh, let's go to prayer. And uh, again, this ought to be an encouragement, the way the psalmist has expressed the fact that God has heard him, that God inclined his ear. Reminds me of the dog in the backyard, you know, half asleep, and he hears a sound, and up comes that ear, and he turns it, zeroes in on it, that God has inclined His ear to my cry. He stooped. He's condescended to hear me, to hear what I wanted, my request. So that ought to encourage us. You say, well, why would He hear me? Why, who, who does He hear? He hears the simple. You want to try to be tricky dick, you know? Slick willy? You want to try to put one over on God? No, He'll not hear you. But the simple, pure in heart, undivided, he hears.